you have to stand for something and it has to be rather unique. And if it's, if it's not all that unique, you have to think of a unique way of presenting it or getting it out there that's going to capture the attention and the imaginations of the public. Welcome to Mission Critical, a podcast about the big picture, the purpose, and the values that drive today's most game-changing companies, entrepreneurs, and leaders. I'm your host, Lance Chung, Editor-in-Chief of Bay Street Bull, and I'll be introducing you to a group of brilliant minds who are making an impact on the world and forging the path ahead. While they may all be very different from one another, the question remains the same. What's your mission? For 27 years, Jeannie Becker was the voice in fashion media, a trailblazer that earned her stripes by reporting on the industry's most spectacular events and personalities. The host of fashion television, her show was syndicated around the globe to 130 countries, offering a glimpse into a pre-social media world that was often guarded and gated. It was her tenacity, warmth, and unapologetic pursuit of a story that led her to interviewing the likes of Karl Lagerfeld, Kate Moss, Naomi Campbell, and so many of the industry's icons and juggernauts. But looking past the sequins and the tool and jewels, Jeannie's reporting on fashion offered a perspective that translated the language of style into a larger dialogue around culture. Through her electric and supercharged interviews, she was also having a conversation about sustainability, about commerce, about politics and culture and values. Fashion has always been a barometer of the times, and Jeannie always understood the assignment well. On today's podcast, I'm joined by the legendary journalist to talk about her foray into the business, the most entrepreneurial designers, and her best advice on fighting for your own opportunities. Plus, why she decided to pursue a career in miming, and what theme she would choose if she co-chaired the Met Gala. Enjoy. Hi, Jeannie. How are you? It is such an honor to be chatting with you today. I'm so excited about our interview. Um, but how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, you know, since the uh, pandemic started, I have been going to and fro from the country to the city, um, which is really nice, living a, a very balanced kind of lifestyle. But I, increasingly, the more I come into the city, I go, ah, I want to get back to the country, especially when the sun's out, the weather's getting warmer. So, mm, yes. <laughs> yeah. And where's the country for you? Is it like uh, the county, Muskoka, which area is the, is the scape? It's a county, the county before you get to the county. <laughs> Right. Uh, it's called Northumberland County. Oh, beautiful. Uh, east of uh, Toronto, Northeast. And yeah, we uh, we love it. I've had a farm uh, there for the past 22 years that I got oh when my, my girls were much younger. And uh, I used to spend a lot of time there with them. And then the, my older daughter decided that she wanted to move there full time and open an animation studio there and become Very a cool. farmer, farmer filmmaker. And uh, so I... I let her have it. So she's at, she's at the farm with her partner and uh, my partner and I about five years ago bought a wonderful uh, 1850 house in this charming village called Warkworth. It's only Amazing. about 15 minutes from my farm. So that's where my I'm one of my dreams uh, at some point when I decide to leave this industry and, and do something else is to have a farm with like two alpacas. 
<laughs> but I feel like that's also a lot of work. So, you know, I'll put that on pause for now. <laughs> <laughs> I see a lot of people doing that kind of thing, though. So it is possible. So yeah, yeah. On. <laughs> um, well, as I mentioned, it's such an honor to be chatting with you today. I'm sure you must get this from like every person that meets you, but your work has just been so influential in my life, not only as a source of fashion and culture, but also in terms of the potential and impact that Canadian media can have on the world. So, you know, thank you for all of that, you know, such a pioneer. Thank you, Lance. Um, That is my greatest honor to hear that kind of thing coming from, you know, people of your generation who really grew up with that show. Uh, We were, you know, at a very exquisite place at a very exquisite time during this exquisite era that we were able to, uh, really unearth so much that we were able to pull back the curtain and and show people you know some of the machinations of uh, that amazing scene and uh it, it it just swells my heart you know people from all over the world really because the show was in 130 countries you know they come up to me and they say you know we got into fashion because of you I mean I don't know if that's a good thing I think in some ways that show created a monster because we kind of hype the hell out of it and you know it's not often a a, a pretty place to be but um, I mean there's no world quite like the world of fashion and correct me if I'm wrong but you host fashion television for 27 years in 130 countries Um, looking back on that what does it mean to you to have had that kind of reach and impact with a show about fashion that started here in Canada, which is, you know, not known as a global fashion capital as well. (laughs) No, but I think that's probably one of the reasons that we could do our job as well as we did it, because we could see the forest for the trees. I mean, we were, you know, I could be in that world, but not of that world necessarily. And uh, interestingly, you know, the other fashion show that for television started um, a few years after we started fashion television and uh, ended a few years before uh, we did, Fashion File was also produced out of Canada. Yeah. So how interesting that Canadians are just such great storytellers. And I think we are by nature. It's just in our DNA. You know, we're nice yeah. and people like to talk to us. And <laughs> I think also just so hungry, hungry for that, like that content and like to have access to that talent and everything as well. You know, I'm sure you have so many incredible memories and stories and I want to get into some of those, but I want to also rewind a little bit. You know, what was your first fashion memory or influence that you can remember? Uh, you mean going back to being a child? Yeah, just like something that really kind of stayed with you, whether that was like, you know, an item or someone in your life or a movie, like what what really kind of set you on that path? Well, without question, my mom, who was Eastern European, um, and you know, she immigrated here in uh, 1948, she had a great love of fashion. And uh, she could never afford any of the designer clothes, of course, as the penniless immigrants that they were. But she would always have a subscription to Vogue and Harper's Bazaar. And, you know, as a child, I fondly remember poring over those issues with her and fantasizing a lot. And then she went out and got a sewing machine and she started making clothes for my sister um, and, and me and, and clothes for herself and clothes for my 
Mitzi doll, which is the knockoff Barbie, because uh, we couldn't afford the real Barbie. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, it, there was a lot of that that really fed my appreciation for fashion. I also used to play with paper dolls a lot. You know, we used to call them cutouts, cutout dolls. Mm -hmm. They were based on the, you know, celebs of the day. Like I had a Donna Reed cutout uh, doll book, the Lennon sisters. And, you know, if you didn't grow up in that era, they, those names might not mean much to you, but that was fun. And that was made me realize that here was this arena with these glamorous possibilities and these transformational possibilities. And I think that particular magic really appealed to me. And I grew up wanting to be a movie star, <laughs> all the kids uh, back in the day. And I became an actress, went off to study uh, acting in New York um, and actually started acting professionally at the age of 16. And then Again, my love of fashion uh, just really started to blossom because I realized its potential, you know, as costume that would aid and enhance character. So, uh, yeah, I've, I've had a lifelong love affair with fashion for sure. Yeah. And I was reading your parents. So your parents immigrated to Canada in 1948 and your father started a slipper factory. Did that have any impact on shaping your view on style or even you know, entrepreneurship, because I think yeah. as many of us experience as child of, uh, as children of immigrants, we see kind of like a firsthand view of entrepreneurship and, and our parents having to like work so hard to get to where they need to get to. And so how did that experience, you know, growing up in that household where you saw your father working in a slipper factory, mm -hmm. how did that shape your, your view on style and entrepreneurship? Well, my father started his slipper factory in the basement of our house. We we lived in this uh, big old house in downtown Toronto. And the only reason that my dad was able to afford to buy it, because uh, we bought that house, uh, I guess, like the year I was born, 1952, was that he rented out all the rooms in the house. And my mother and my father and my sister and I lived in two rooms on the main floor. But all the other rooms were rented out to an exotic array of uh, immigrants, uh, and that was a wonderful education in itself. Yeah. Um, my father, who had been working at another slipper factory shortly after he arrived in Canada, decided that he really wanted to be in business for himself. That was very important to him. He didn't want to work for someone else. So he was adamant about starting his own company, and the only thing he knew at that point was slipper factory. So he started a slipper factory in the basement of our home with a partner, a business partner who he had another fellow factory worker that he met. Uh, somehow they got, they, they borrowed the money to buy these machines. And, and so it started. And then eventually they got a, a space uh, down on Adelaide Street. The work ethic that my dad had, because he had to put a roof over our heads and uh, he didn't really have any, you know, big connections out there in the world at all. He barely spoke English. Um, he worked like a dog. He worked seven days a week, 12 hours a day. I kid you not. Like, mm -hmm. it's phenomenal now to think of, you know, how we're talking about these reduced work weeks. And, you know, we're all, this is what I saw growing up. My dad was always working like that and working and working and, and working. And then, of course, I would go visit him at the factory, perhaps on a Saturday afternoon. And, uh, you know, in wide-eyed wonder at all this, stuff that was going on because all of a sudden you know he had other people working for him and and there were all these machines and all these wonderful fabrications he used to make these novelty slippers out of uh, plush 
uh, and so the, these colors and the, the little, the inventiveness of, the, they were bunny heads and clown <laughs> heads and tiger heads and, you know, kitten heads. These were the amusing little novelty slippers. That's what his company was called, uh, Quality Slippers. Uh, and I remember the tagline was a varied line of novelty slippers. You know, I don't know where he got that wording from because he probably barely understood what it meant. Someone must have told him to call it that. I saw the incredible competition that he was up against, especially back in those days when uh, things were being made offshore and being sold here to retailers at much reduced prices. And he had to keep competing with those prices and keep his uh, costs down. And that was really tough. And uh, I saw him um, trying to come up with new ideas all the time and he didn't have a designer on board. It was just him and his imagination. And I saw him uh, look at other things out there in the market and you know, his little office was filled with all these great different samples from all over the place. And you know, he would see which ones he could sort of be inspired by. <laughs> not, not, I hate to think that my dad knocked anything off. <laughs> but he came up with his own version and listen, you know, then years later, of course, as you know, I had my own clothing lines and and I saw the way that world operates. Right. So it was just, wow, that was an incredible preparation for what I was to do later in life, uh, for sure. And, and just how incredibly ecstatic he was if he got an order. You know, he used to uh, do business with uh, with Woolworths and Kresge's, uh, stores of that nature, and, and the Bata Shoe Company. Mm. Um, and Eaton's and Simpson's and he was you know my mom and I would my mom had an old little rickety typewriter and she would type out all the shipping uh labels at home um for my dad to glue on the boxes that he was sending and I thought wow my dad's sending slippers to Moose Jaw Saskatchewan you know it doesn't get more glamorous than that does it yeah and I, I was so proud of my dad for you know all of a sudden having that reach and there we were in our little you know, house sending out all these slippers, you know, to the rest of the country. It, it felt great. And I know for him, it was kind of empowering. I mean, he had a lot of frustrations being in business um, for himself, but I don't think he was the type that would have liked to have to answer to anybody. Mm -hmm. While I was doing my research for this, I also discovered that you pursued a career in miming uh, before your your career in in journalism, um, or you and you trained to be under the same guy that taught David Bowie, I believe. What drew you to that art form? And you know, are there any like core tenets of miming that you took with you into your other kind of professional endeavors? Oh, lads, listen, come on, you gotta know, <laughs> you gotta know this by now, my son, that everything you do in life. Uh, builds on what you uh, end up doing and what you become and 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 it gives you that lens through which you see the world and I was in love with uh, drama <laughs> and I was in love with the theater and I wanted to be an actress as I said wanted wanting to be a movie star want, certainly you know at least a tv star that was my wish on my birthday cake every year I wanted my own tv show that's all I you know cared about when I blew out the candles um so as I, you know, went on and started to study acting and started to, you know, get roles, I started to be um, a little bit disillusioned by how anybody seemed to be able to get a part. If, you know, they had the right color hair or, you know, the, the right shape of a nose or they, 
the right tone in their voice or you know, it just all seemed so superficial that business of acting to me and it became increasingly uh, important for me to learn an exacting technique and in mine you either create the illusion or you don't I mean there's no two ways about it and because it doesn't depend on words at all um, it, it's such a pure form of communication that you could talk to anybody in the world. It doesn't matter mm. what language they spoke and they, they could get your message. And yeah. communication was always something that, that drove me. Um, I had gone to New York to study um, acting and it was a fabulous experience um, back in the early seventies. And then I thought, you know, if I really want to be a great actress, I you know, have to be intellectual too. And I should go back to university to maybe study theater there. Like maybe that would, so I enrolled at a York University theater program and it just, it was, I think it was maybe the first year that they even had the program there. And it was after having studied in New York, I thought, oh, this is not, you know, great art or this is not the way <laughs> to approach studying great art. I just was not impressed. So I found out that there was a guy teaching mime uh, downtown somewhere at some studio. And I thought, I sort of like the idea of corporal expression. You know, I was always into dance, loved that, loved movement and, and you know, just the, the theatrics of it all. So um, I started going to this guy downtown, you know, after my classes at university ended and studied mime and I became so enamored with the art form. And I just thought it was so incredible. And, and this guy's name is Paul Golan, had studied in Paris with the old man that taught Marcel Marceau, Etienne de Creux, who is known as the father of modern mime. Right. Said, you know, you, sh you should go study with this old man. I think you really have the talent. You could really do this thing. Well, that certainly appealed to me. Wow, go to Paris and study with this old man. That so I uh, took off for Paris in 1973 you know, with my little Berlitz dictionary under my arm because I only had like high school French. I mean, I didn't know anybody there. I didn't. I, I had saved up uh, my money, you know, cocktail waitressing down at the old Colonial Tavern in Toronto the summer before. And I I started to go to this mime school. He had a, a studio in his house, in the basement of his house in the Bois de Boulogne, a beautiful little place. It was Jessica Lang had been studying there. As I said, oh. David Bowie had studied with him. And it was a remarkable, brilliant experience. And then I also started taking classes from another mime artist who had actually been married to Marcel Marceau, uh, Ella Yaroshevich, who was um, a dancer with the Polish mime ballet at one point. So her approach was very balletic. So I thought, oh, and I'm getting these two different types of mime techniques and this is it. I'm gonna be a pure, true artist and I'm gonna have this incredible technique. And, and then I started realizing that I could end up starving in a garret if that was the route. I, and I thought, you know, I don't know. So after about a year, I thought, you know what, maybe I should go back to university and blah, 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 move back yeah. to Toronto and uh, then move to St. John's, Newfoundland. And I was the only mime artist in the province. And I got a job at the CBC radio. So <laughs> go figure, right? Like, yeah. Anyway. That's, that's a whole other story. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. First of all, it gave me a real understanding of, of what it takes to be that kind of artist and the dedication and the devotion and the um, it's just the passion that you have to have for your craft um, and for and to learn the technique um, so int intimately, to know it so intimately. 
So of course, in my you know years as a journalist, having dealt with so many artists, I think artists appreciate that I was once kind of an artist in, in, in that way too. So definitely. But also, you know, like look at me. I, I don't know if you if anybody out there, if you're just listening to the podcast, you won't see me throwing <laughs> my arms all about, but I, I'm very, I'm a very physical performer. I mean, without question, even now it's made me so conscious of the way I move my body. I mean, like I could be on TSC, you know, formerly the shopping channel where I, I have a show now and I'm very conscious of a catch myself, you know, in the monitor and doing this live show, you know, how am I sitting? How is my body uh coming across and what are what are my hands doing what what are my legs doing you know it's given me this wonderful awareness of uh just my physicality that i think is important for any artist or or performer in in the visual uh medium noted so i'm gonna book a drop in mime class if i can find one and then i'll expand (laughs) on my my skill (laughs) set But storytelling, I mean, has been such a constant in your life uh, and your career. What kind of stories were the ones that really drew your interest the most at the heart of what you wanted to say about the world through your interviews or through your coverage of whether it was music or fashion? Well, my parents were Holocaust survivors and uh, they, they spoke incessantly of what their life was like before the war leading up to it and then of course their horrifying stories of of survival um, during the war years and they just told so many stories all the time I mean some of them that I didn't really like to listen to that I would like I remember as a five-year-old hiding under the bed because I didn't want to hear any more war stories Mm -hmm. but I realized in later years that it, it was those stories that really made me who I became because they became such a part of me. And I guess um, stories about uh, survival um, have always uh, resonated with me because of that. And of course, you know, I'm not necessarily telling stories about life and death survival. I mean, not at all. It wasn't like I wanted to go out and become a war correspondent. But I wanted people to realize, I guess, uh, because I myself relished the realization that um, people could get through anything and that they could, you know, rise like phoenixes from the ashes and, and reinvent themselves and reinvent their lives. I mean, that, that was always something that was very important to me. Um, and that if you really dreamed and you believed in the dreams, most importantly, and you were never afraid and you never gave up because that was my dad's motto. That's what Psalms through the war, the war, don't be afraid and never give up. That was definitely his motto. So if you're um, fearless and tenacious, you can really accomplish anything. And my mom was always reading us fairy tales. You know, that was her great, uh, you know, she really wanted to better her uh, English. So she would take us to the library and take out all these great fairy tale books. And we just grew up in that world of, of dreams and believing in those dreams and they both encouraged me um because they really did 
feel that growing up in Canada, anything was possible, you know, if you worked hard enough for it. I guess as a storyteller, that's where my, you know, if it's a talent as a storyteller or just the will to tell stories and the urge to tell stories, the, the passion for storytelling definitely came from my parents. Yeah, yeah. I've been listening to your podcast, uh, Beyond Style Matters. And one episode that I loved was the one you had with your fashion television cameraman and field producer about navigating the chaos of the fashion industry. And it was just such an interesting kind of behind the curtains kind of look of just what it takes to put on a show of that caliber and of of what you were doing. Um, when fashion television was on and it was like you know it was almost grill sound the way that you landed some of your big interviews and the footage that you were able to get what did those experiences teach you about fighting for your opportunities and like were they a master class on how to like advocate for yourself and your vision especially you know again as like a canadian team in these global fashion capitals and like really just like fighting to get the interview or to get the footage or even just to like shoot footage, you know, like what did that teach you about that? It taught me to be fearless and tenacious. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I, and I had my dad's voice in my ear the entire time that I was running after Carl Lagerfeld for a 20 second soundbite. I knew that I had to come back, you know, with the kill. I, I needed that material to make a show with. I didn't want to disappoint my producers. I didn't want to disappoint I wanted to, uh, to, you know, really be successful in the eyes of my cameraman because he was, you know, all my cameramen and I worked with a, a whole team of brilliant guys that they were like my dance partners and they would, you know, follow my leads out there. And, you know, I, I just knew that I had to go in for the kill all the time. I mean, they, I, I was probably known as the chick with the sharpest elbows in the business because I would <laughs> elbow my way through. I mean, there were times, I honestly tell you, that I was in fear of my life. Like it got wow. pretty brutal there. And like, especially in, in like the French paparazzi, I mean, they're crazy. I mean, I love mm. some of them. Some of them are just, <laughs> they'll do anything to, to get by you. And it was, it's got very physical sometimes. And it was, uh, it was a, a fight to get stuff. And um, you had to, you know, eat humble pie for breakfast, lunch, dinner, because if you thought you were too good to do that kind of thing, you just wouldn't have, tape that you needed at the end of the shoot yeah you know you really had to it was um you know sometimes it's like I, I you know I it's like I'm brought to tears to think of how hard I worked in those fields in those trenches some of it maybe people realized and saw you know a lot of it they didn't um you know you never really see always what goes on behind the scenes we tried to show people on our show anyway because we covered the scene with a certain kind of irreverence and humor and uh, if I got, you know, snubbed by people or if I really had to run, literally run after people, you know, we would show it, you know, yeah. because it's sort of made for great entertainment, you know. And I was just kind of, you know, the girl next door that would take everybody by the hand each week and bring them into this monstrous snake pit. You know? So um, so that was kind of fun. But boy, oh boy, you know, yeah, I was tough when it came right down to getting what I needed and um, not in a, a bitchy mean way. And then I never w would step on people. <laughs> literally. Mm. You know, I, I didn't want to, you know, like piss anybody off, but you know, if the designer finally came out from backstage or, 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 you know, finally was, you know, up for doing interviews and, you know, I would 
run as fast as my stilettos would carry me over to, you know, to try and be the first to try and get, get those sand bites. And I had a, quite a great track record, I must say too. I mean, a lot of it was because all these designers had seen our show and really loved it and appreciated it, appreciated my enthusiasm and my energy, I think, mm -hmm. part of it. And I, uh, you know, ha felt I had a personal relationship with a lot of these people I was going after. So that made it easier. Sometimes the seas would part in a scrum, you know, if, if Carl saw me waiting, like he'd reach his hand out for me and pull me in, you know, much to the chagrin of some of the other, you know, crews standing around waiting. But uh, that was, you know, one of the, the great rewards of my job that I did manage to uh, kind of, you know, connect with people um, on a, a wonderful level and get stuff out of them that maybe, you know, they wouldn't normally have given to others. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think it was in the same episode where you were talking about a Chanel show uh, with your, your um, cameraman and the field producer. And I think there were no cameras allowed, but you guys had somehow mm -hmm. snuck a camera onto a bus. And then you ended up getting an interview with Lagerfeld, uh, yeah, something along those lines. Saint-Tropez, yeah, exactly. Yes, we Just were unapologetic bad. about it. <laughs> yeah, we were naughty, very, you know. I love it. Uh, we definitely broke rules, a lot of rules, a lot of the time that we just would not take no for an answer. Just, mm. you know, we just did not want to take no for an answer. And like, isn't that the great lesson to be learned in life? I mean, the, the last uh, biography that um, autobiography I wrote in, in uh, 2010 came out, um, Finding Myself in Fashion, I wanted to call it um, life's lessons from fashion's trenches and you know the you know the publisher went no no that's not catchy enough you can't call it that life lessons from fashion's trenches but really that's what i wanted to impart to uh, some degree and and there's a whole lot more in that area i'd love to explore how the fashion world really became a microcosm of life for me and can be seen that way and the lessons that i learned about survival in the fashion world really did serve me well in life um, those two things were happening, you know, congruently though, you know, my, my toil in the trenches of fashion along with me, you know, living a life and trying to get through that. Yeah. Um, but uh, it, yeah, it, it was an arena that really served me well in the end, really mm. well. It taught me a lot about human nature, taught me a lot about the fact that the only constant is change because that's certainly true in fashion and isn't it so true in life. Yeah. Yeah. And, and building on that, I mean, like, what did you use to fuel yourself and your ambitions when you were told no? And, you know, when the gatekeepers wanted to keep their gates closed, you know, what did you harness from it within yourself to forge ahead and like, get what you needed? Yeah, it's just that whole, you know, one foot in front of the other mentality, no matter what happens, just keep going. Uh, and that was always my uh, mode of operation. And, you know, it's like that old, the old showbiz adage, the show must go on <laughs> no matter what. You just keep doing it. And that, that was just the way I was raised. That's truly the way I saw the world. That is still the way I see the world. Now, you've spoken to some of the most 
influential people in fashion and music uh, from Jean-Paul Gaultier to Naomi Campbell to Karl Lagerfeld. I mean, like the list just goes on and on. I mean, having spoken to some of these like industry titans, what do you think was like really like the secret sauce to being a world dominating influence as a designer? Like, was there a common denominator or a through line between all of these goliaths of the industry that really spoke to their magnetism and their ability to get to the top? Well, there's so many contributing factors to one's success. It's, it's really, you know, and, and then there are the obvious ones, you know, mm-hmm. the hard work, uh, the discipline, the, the stick with itness, you know, the, the whole idea that uh, you just have to, you know, keep your eye on the prize. But I think for a lot of the people that you're thinking of, or you know, we think of the, the people that really succeeded in fashion, mm-hmm. having a unique point of view, I think is paramount importance yes. to anyone. I and mean, then that's the first thing I will tell a lot of, you know, the young designers that come to me or people starting brands or they want to, you know, you have to stand for something and it has to be rather unique. And if it's if it's not all that unique, you have to think of a unique way of presenting it or getting it out there that's going to capture the the attention and the imaginations of the public so uh, yeah I I would say it's probably that you know originality and of course in fashion I mean that's what gets celebrated the most I mean it's all about originality you know the the biggest prize goes to uh, those who are true originals I agree I mean you know we we from our end are we are always talking about and covering the entrepreneurial ecosystem. And obviously that exists across a diversity of industries, but what I think it really comes down to, and even from the media side, when we get all these pitches, it's like, what do you have to say about what you're doing? Or like, what is your point of view and how do you differentiate yourself? And it's not like every company has to be a mission focused company or, you know, something uh, creating something that, you know, changes the world or anything like you can, make t-shirts and that'll be fine but like what do you what how are you setting yourself apart and what do you have to say and or how are you delivering that message if we define an entrepreneur as an individual who who like uniquely solves problems through the vehicle of business um, someone who innovates or isn't afraid of taking risks who in your opinion was a really great example of like an enterprising designer um, that you met that not only had like the creative vision, but also understood the business having understood kind of like everything outside of like the sparkles, you know, Tommy Hilfiger. Mm. Um, I met him at a very, very early <clears throat> stage in his career. And, you know, he had come from this background of like selling blue jeans out of the back of his car. You know, he was really, a street smart kind of guy who was very enterprising from the get-go. You know, I mean, a lot of people still didn't maybe ever consider him to be a true designer or, you know, during the time he was coming up, American designers were not as celebrated as the the French designers, the Italian designers, even the British designers. But he, from the moment that he went into business, realized that he had to make some kind of a noise. And uh, a brilliant ad man by the name of George Lois did his early campaigns that came out and said, um, 
you've heard of Ralph, you've heard of Calvin now, you know, wait for Tommy or something, you know, like referring to Calvin Klein and yeah. Ralph Lauren, Tommy was going to be the next great American, you know, casual wear designer. And I remember an interview with him, and this is really going back to the, uh, you know, mid eighties when he was just launching. And I said to him, you know, do you really expect to be as famous as Calvin Klein and Ralph Lauren? And he just, you know, looked at me and went, in time, yes, I do expect to be that kid. And it's like, okay, he, and I thought, oh yeah, right, who is this kid? Like he's, but sure enough, you know, Lawrence Stroll, great Canadian businessman invested uh, in his company. I don't know the story of how exactly they met or how that happened, but uh, he was smart enough to, to align himself, very savvy business people. That's a mistake that I think a lot of, uh, designers make they have brilliant creative vision they're great artists but the business is a whole other yes. ball game as uh, you certainly know um and i think tommy just uh, determined to make it he knew he had a vision he associated with the right people before he knew it he was like taking a good chunk of business from the ralph Lawrence or even calvin klein and uh certainly turned uh, his business into uh, quite a little empire yeah and what excites you about today's designers and today's fashion landscape? Does and, and does anything surprise you about what's happening in fashion today, for better or for worse, I guess? Well, I mean, on one hand, on a very heartening um, level, I'm very buoyed to see that a lot of these um, younger designers are really trying to make a difference. So there is a great proliferation of sustainable brands and that's become the biggest conversation in fashion now sustainability like what are we going to do about this incredible problem that we have the textile industry as you know one of the biggest polluters of the planet has been it's just horrible like so how how could fashion make sense in our lives right now and so that that i think is very impressive and very interesting it's kind of Sad that a lot of people though are just jumping on the bandwagon because now it's become the trendy thing to do. So they're, you know, like I, I don't know how much passion is if they're really doing it for the good of the planet or just because it seems like the thing to do, or you know, they they better get on board or they're not greenwashing. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I mean, there's that. But this whole idea of of uh, standing for something, um, and and really not just putting out clothes for the sake of putting out clothes but something about you know, the messaging, something about trying to make people's lives, not just you know, more beautiful, but better. I think that uh, has been one of the greatest things that I've seen um, in fashion these past few years. People yeah. um, you know, creating fashion of, you know, with a conscious, that you know, ethics have become incredibly important uh, and, and they weren't for a long, long time. You know, ethical production of fashion was like, people rarely talked about it and right. now uh, it's at the forefront and, and I think the consumer has just become so much more sophisticated uh, and wonderfully so where you know they're asking the right questions or starting to anyway ask the right questions and I think you know this whole idea of you know um, less is more that's coming into play is also really great I mean I understand that companies have to try and make it make sense for them because well, if you're saying less is more, does that mean that we're not going to be able to sell as much stuff? You know, 
yeah, maybe not, but you're going to be able to sell better stuff. You're going to be able to maybe charge more for it. If, you know, if we can get the consumer to really understand that um, buying better. I mean, that that's really what it's all about. We don't need that much stuff, but we need the stuff that we have to really stand up to really last and we, you know this, the whole idea of disposable fashion thank god thank god thank god that is so passe now mm-hmm. I mean, it, it still may exist you know to in, for some people in some quarters of course i'm not saying it's totally been eradicated but uh, but we've certainly moved um from it and uh people are, are seeing it and this new generation is, is seeing that in a new light the whole idea of circular fashion and and you know using the stuff and you know when yep. you're with it just put it back out there in the world for someone else to enjoy or for it to be recycled upcycled um resold i I think that's uh that's just great the whole idea of vintage shopping is very exhilarating and it's like you know people are on on this treasure hunt now for for just the right pieces and i think that's uh that's great and it's provided a great education for uh younger people too that didn't understand where some of these trends came from because there's not all that much that's that new in fashion you know except maybe um you know fabrications and that's that's the new frontier and we're seeing a lot of experimentation on this So, I mean, building on that, fashion has always been a barometer of the times, right? It speaks to politics, economics, culture, environment, and so much more. Um, You know, when Dior debuted the new look, it was a celebration of like post-war ultra-femininity. And it was also a commentary of the times. And there's a million more examples of how fashion has always been a commentary of the bigger picture. Looking back on your career, like what were... What do you think were the biggest conversations that were being discussed that spoke about larger issues through the lens of fashion and style? Are you, are you talking about, you know, the whole connection of like politics and, and fashion? Yeah, like, did you ever notice where, you know, obviously fashion for fashion, you know, that was being celebrated and there were so many great talents, but did you ever notice a designer or an instance where there was a, a bigger picture that was involved where you could see that it was a commentary on social politics or economics oh. or yeah. I mean, uh, I'm trying to think now, what year was this? I believe it was 2014. Um, I, I curated um, or, or guest curated a show at the design exchange, the design museum in Toronto called the fashion of politics, the politics of fashion. Um, that was all about that, um, all the messaging that had gone on in fashion over the decades and how um, the fashion platform had often been used as uh, a place where, you know, that kind of, you know, political ideology could be expressed. I mean, so so there, there are many, many different examples of it. I mean, we see it all the time. I mean, just recently, uh, Vanessa Friedman in the New York Times uh, wrote that a wonderful article about uh, Zelensky's uh, military green t-shirt and what kind of statement that was making on a sartorial mm. front. I, I see fashion as such a brilliant means of communication. Uh, that's, you know, again, communication, the thing that drove me from the get-go. 
um, and that's why I you know fell in love with fashion because it could tell so much about the character, about the times, about the times which we're living. I mean, you just have to look around at you know, oh, people are are dressing down. Things are getting more comfortable, more casual because that's what's happened, especially especially the last couple of years with so many of us now working from home and you know yeah. th this whole idea of oversize now because I don't know if you had a chance to see you know Justin Bieber on yes. the carpet yeah. <laughs> Grammys with this Balenciaga suit that looked like 20 sizes too big for him you know he looked like one of the you know <laughs> seven dwarfs or something in it it was really quite amusing to me but you know wow that that makes a statement too it's a, almost like we want to get lost in this stuff that you know clothing is armor this is our armor you know, whether it's a, a tough chic thing and whether you want it, you know, you're going to have it all studded and, you know, in the, in the days of, of the punk era, you know, I think there were some incredible political, you know, the way it was held together with safety pins. I mean, that just said so much. It was just, you know, such a time of, uh, of a reverence for um, just for tradition um, mm -hmm. that that era was, you know, so uh, indicative of that. But now, um, you know, I'm, I'm seeing all this volume, you know, like Billie Eilish wearing gigantic clothes. And, you know, it's very much about uh, hiding almost, like burying yourself. Like you just want to indulge in, you know, the luxury of, of the immediate um, world around you without necessarily mm. thinking about that big, cold, cruel, dark picture out there. Yeah, um, that's very true. But, but then again, then, and then you have people showing it all you know like skin has been incredibly uh, out there uh and increasingly so you know the last few years you know so then what does that say we want to be transparent you know we want to show the world who we really are yeah you know unabashedly um, without any shame or uh, or pretense so we have all you know kinds of breasts on display you know for better or worse I, I know it's interesting I, I love reading fashion that way i think it's uh it never fails to tell a story about the individual uh, sporting it. What brings you joy when it comes to what you're seeing in fashion and what you have seen in fashion? Like what really excites you when you see a designer's new collection or a red carpet or something, even in a store? Like what's that kind of like first thing that really just like is the thing for you? Hmm. I've always enjoyed exuberance and fashion, you know, and that's one thing that, you know, uh, it's like on with the show. I mean, for me, I, I'm not really a minimalist. I mean, I am personally in the way I choose to dress, like, you know, black, black, black is my <laughs> color. And I, you know, I, I like a, a kind of modern minimalism for sure. But, you know, on a runway or out there on a the red carpet, I always do enjoy a certain kind of exuberance and I had the absolute luxury, privilege, blessed, witnessed so many couture shows up close and personal, you know, all through the decades. Um, and the level of detailing, the masterful um, artisanal quality to some of these creations is just, you know, mind blowing. You know, the, the eye popping detail, um, every stitch, every bead, every sequin, I mean, never fails to kind of, uh, blow my mind yeah I, I really really appreciate uh, all that too because in fashion I mean I think God really is always in the details um, definitely so that's great but yeah there's so much about fashion I love but at the end of the day it's so not about the dresses 
it's so not about the clothes. I mean, the schmata business, as I grew up calling it, that we all <laughs> that's, that's what our, our my parents called it, the schmata business, the rag trade, is really, it's about the people. That it, That's really what, and, and because the only creatures on this planet are that get dressed up are people, right? That's, it, it kind of humanizes us, this whole, you know, act or for some art of getting dressed. And to me, it, it's ultimately about who's wearing the clothes, not the clothes themselves. I mean, you know, you talk about this, what is great style? And is it, you know, the best dress list? And all of those people that really know how to put those outfits together is so not about what you choose to wear. It's about who you choose to be. think has been you know the lesson that took you the longest to learn about yourself as you've navigated your career you know maybe that I'm that that I'm tougher than I thought I was because I was always like oh I'm sensitive little girl you know I was you know pretty shy as a little kid and I was always so um you know meek in a way although there I was at the age of 17, 1969, dancing on stage at the Toronto Pop Festival in front of 60,000 people. Thanks <laughs> yeah, Meek, Meek is not the first word that comes to mind when I think of Jeannie Becker. <laughs> yeah, but I'm telling you, yeah. But I did kind of, you know, I was shy. I don't, I pushed myself to get out there, but there, I was very, you know, insecure. And I think we all are, maybe. Maybe we all are. I don't know, to some degree. But I... To so have survived and thrived, um, and you know, still be working today. I'm proud of myself for that, for hanging in there. But not just that I hung in there, even though I didn't really want to. I mean, I love it. So uh, wow, what a joy that is. Also, you know, my marriage broke up very unexpectedly uh, in the late '90s. Like it was seriously, like one day I thought I had like the perfect life, and and my husband just that he didn't want to be married anymore. Like, just mm. like that. I know that sounds crazy to some people, but trust me, it does happen. Like, rah, you know, my world, you know, certainly came tumbling down on many fronts, but I didn't let it stop me from uh, continuing on and just putting one foot in front of the other as difficult and horrifying and as dark a time as it was. Um, and again, not only survived that, um, dark period of my life, but really, you know, thrived. And I really believe that you must keep an open mind and an open heart in life. Number one, you know, that's the most important thing. So never to have closed myself off, you know, to have, you know, fell madly in love at the age of 63. I met my current partner, Ian, he's just a, you know, my, my knight in shining armor and, you know, mm. wow. You know, and I don't know if there's, ever such a thing as an ever after but I'm certainly living happily now and you know never thought that would really be possible on that front so yeah just so many things I think that's I, I maybe surprised myself that I'm you know a lot tougher than than I gave myself credit for and right. yeah. you have to be absolutely um and so you've dedicated your career to telling other people's stories 
what is a story that you would like to tell about yourself today? Well, um, and funny you should ask that because as you know, the cogs are turning for I'm definitely getting ready. This whole business of of aging and what that means and what that means uh, today in this society and what it means to our um, selves. Because I think, you know, so many, you know, turning 70 was daunting as much as I tried to underplay it. Now it's 70, it's just a number. And, and truly, you know, I've met people, you know, half my age that seem older to me. You know, I'm very much in touch with my inner teen, <laughs> always have been and swear to, you know, always be. I just think that's the kind of inspirational you know, not to get too lofty and pretentious about that, but I, I think because I've seen what I've seen and met the kind of incredible people that I've met along the way and learned so much from them and had a big, rather fabulous life so far, knock on wood, I think I've got a lot of stories to tell that I would hope inspire people um, because I think we're all looking for inspiration right about now. I think that's absolutely. So I just... You know, what does anybody who, you know, who writes a book or, or anybody really in the media, you just want to touch people. You just want to try and touch people. Yeah, so, absolutely. Um, to do that. Um, as kind of a summary of what we've been talking about in this conversation, at the end of the day, why does fashion matter? I don't, I don't, <laughs> I'm going to say something. That I don't know if fashion matters as much as style matters, mm. which happens to be the name of my show yes. <laughs> and my podcast beyond style matters um but i it matters because it's uh it's it's part of our humanity i mean it really is again as i said and in the great uh, fashionista daphne guinness uh and i talked to her I listen to that episode podcast. yeah but that's just yeah. so great. i love her so much she's such an inspiration and she has she just oozes style i mean uh, uh, has said that to me many times that it's you know, on this planet, we are the only creatures that do get dressed, that can make those conscious decisions about how we deal with situations, because now I'm taking it beyond the sartorial, not just about, you know, the one creative decision everyone gets to make every day, you know, in front of your closet, you decide what to wear. So, I mean, that's good because it exercises our uh, our abilities and our talents as, uh, as creative beings. But it also, um, we all have a choice about how we want to deal with situations. I don't know if you know, animals don't often have those choices. I think they act on instinct. But I mean, for, for people you know, who are out there you know, living lives and having relationships, and you know, we all have a responsibility to ourselves to, to answer for ourselves and to behave in, in ways that... Um, just make the world a, a, a better place. I don't know. I, I, so I think that's, if that answers your question, style to me is all about that. You know, as I say at the top of my podcast, it's beyond the clothes, uh, so much more than the clothes that we wear. It's about the way we move through the world. That to me is great style. And that, that matters a lot. It matters the way in which we move through the world. I mean, obviously we've got to, I mean, that's, that's all we have uh, and to be able to, not only you know please ourselves be proud of ourselves but to set uh, wonderful examples for others absolutely at the end of the day 
what has been your mission and what is your mission today? Your purpose, what gives you, what's the bigger picture for Jeannie Becker? Yeah. I don't know, just to be the best Jeannie Becker I can be. Uh, you know, just just to try and keep uh, learning and keep uh, growing and uh, continue to touch people on some level. You know, sometimes, you know, it might not be, you know, in that monumental way, but you just want to keep uh, being engaged and engaging, you know, and that that's what being relevant is all about. I mean, that whole struggle, you know, we talked earlier about this whole idea of aging. A lot of people, and especially I found a lot of women, just feel that they they become less relevant with age, which to me is just oh, mm-hmm. it's sin to think that way. I mean, it's it's quite the opposite. I I would think, you know, yeah. you have to be more relevant and uh, find a way of making yourself more relevant. Actually, that's how I fell in love. <laughs> that's one of the reasons. It was, and it was love at first sight with my partner Ian. He came up to me at a I was at a gala um, at Michael Gallery. Uh, the Moonlight Gala, it was called. And I was very, very down and depressed. I didn't even want to go that night because my mom had just died two weeks before that. And I didn't have a date. And I was you know, sitting there in my little black dress feeling rather miserable. But uh, this fellow just came right up to me and he goes, hi, you know, my name is Ian McInnes and I'm on the foundation board of, on your career and how you've always managed to keep yourself so relevant. And I thought, that the sexiest thing any guy ever said to me. <laughs> you know that this okay this is a person that would will understand why i dance as fast as i can and sure enough i think he does so right. uh yeah i think relevance is if you have a few more minutes i want i have a, a rapid fire question just for <laughs> fun just to end off um that i would love to to do with you one answer questions or a thought or an anecdote just kind of casual keep it fun uh, Paris or Milan? Paris. Paris. Stilettos or flats? Stilettos. <laughs> Manol- Manolos or Jimmy Choo's? Manolo. Yeah. Spring, summer wear or fall, winter? Fall, winter. Okay. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> if you were on the planning committee of the Met Gala, what theme would you like to see and who would be your celebrity co-chairs? Wow. <laughs> I would like to see um oh e ah wow <laughs> you know I something to do I mean again I because I've just celebrated this big birthday and because I I want to you know keep on that relevance uh bandwagon and and you know talk to people um about uh you know what it really means to to age in this society I probably a show about that, mm. you know, um, and definitely um, pumping up the fact that there's no such thing as uh, age-appropriate dressing. Although in the past people have thought there was such a thing, and now no, our daughters are borrowing our clothes, and we're borrowing our daughters' clothes, and I think that's all fabulous. And I'd probably love to, you know, have Norma Kamali as my coaching. I think she's totally brilliant and stands for all that. And, and uh, who would you wear? I you know, if, if, if it was not normal, who would you wear if you had carte blanche? Well, it would have to be a Canadian. I mean, it would have to be a Canadian. Uh, you know, I got the Order of Canada for my yes. design. Yeah. So, you know, and of course, they're doing great stuff. I'd probably get the boys at uh, Greta Constantine. Beautiful stuff. Something up for me because I'm just so proud of them too. And having watched 
them from the early days and their stuff is is full of that exuberance that I love so much. Beautiful. Zoolander or Mugatu? I just wore a Zoolander. I can't believe you're having a Zoolander. I just wore a <laughs> last night that I recovered from the back of my closet. That's funny. <laughs> uh, you're setting your dream dinner party. Who's attending and what are you serving? Oh, how many people do you want to invite? Let's say like an intimate dinner party of like four to six people um, oh. of anyone that you would want. Oh, dead or alive. I mean, <laughs> you know, obviously how, you know, I have to have my parents there. A dinner party. I don't know. I probably, oh, <laughs> I've lost so many people and so many people recently too that have gone that just, you know, I'd love to have Alexander McQueen there. Mm -hmm. he's uh he's just uh i loved him so much what a great and i'd probably like to have uh kevin o'quan the late great kevin o'quan wonderful uh makeup artist that made me over and gave me the thrill of a lifetime a wonderful uh wonderful guy betty davis it was her birthday yesterday i've been watching all these old obscure some of the betty davis films are just blown away by her genius she was pretty fabulous okay that that's okay and i have to think oh maybe maybe one more you know one more woman how is that like we balanced out here oh i don't know <laughs> the late taller cranston who was a very very dear friend of mine olympic figure skater who taught mm. me a lot about style uh, <laughs> and flamboyance we were you know as thick as thieves for a very long time so yeah. uh would love to mix him up with the company. But it, I mean, if that was with my parents there, I'm just thinking and that would be, a, <laughs> woo, woo. I don't know how well that would, uh, that would work. I have to, you know, give some more thought to the guest list. And what's a uh, genie's signature dish or cocktail? Oh, oh I got so <laughs> many of them. Well, I gotta say, I cook a mean chili. Oh, yes. I really both vegetarian and Actually, I did that for my uh, 70th birthday. I had a small gathering of friends and I cooked up vats of chili and I've had for many years, I hadn't during the past couple of years of pandemic, sadly, but these big Christmas parties at the house, we call them chili and cheer. And I make mm. all the food, I make all the chili, these big tubs of it and people just come in the kitchen and serve themselves. And uh, it's just the coziest night of the year so i'd say my chili is pretty much my signature <laughs> i love it uh style trend that you hope never comes back hmm. you know that's funny a lot of people like to talk about that oh those ugly you know like people say those shoulder pads you know and, and baloney because the shoulder pads are back i yes. love them. i can't really think of anything that i think is so horrifyingly ugly that, <laughs> i mean that's just my i never say never like that's, that's a very, I think that's very important for all you kids out there. <laughs> never say never. And I've never been, you know, any trend that came out at the time came out for a reason and it felt right. Um, yeah. So I, I really can't think of anything that I absolutely abhor. I mean, some things for me, maybe, you know, I wouldn't subscribe to them, but and sometimes Manolo Blahnik uh, taught me that. He said to me, sometimes it's good to be a little trashy. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And uh, you know, it's like you appreciate a little bit of that. <laughs> yes. Uh travel essential. When you're covering shows, when you're interviewing designers, or even if you're on vacation, what is the, like the thing that you need to have? My Elsa Peretti Wonder Woman.
tough. I love it. I got it at a time in my life when I was just trying to pick up the pieces when I'd been totally devastated. And uh, this was gifted to me and uh, it's totally empowering. I never go anywhere without it. I love it. Iconic as well. Do you have a beauty must have? Uh, hmm. Black eyeliner. Absolutely. Yeah. I just, you know, <laughs> if the eyes are the, uh, the windows of the soul, <laughs> I just need mine to stand out all the time. So I've been wearing black eyeliner since I was 16 years old, every day, rain or shine, yes. no matter where I'm going. <laughs> uh, your last fashion splurge. I hate to bite the hand that feeds me because I should be, you know, saying yes. And I spent $5,000. You know, I used to splurge like that when I used to cover the, the shows in Paris. You know, every season I would go and I had to have the, the latest it bag or the you know, greatest pair of shoes or be at the, you know, the Saint Laurent boutique or the, uh, the, the Prada boutique. And, and lately, I really can't even remember the last time I went out and spent a whole lot of money on one article of clothing. Mm. Um, I've also have the great luxury of having vast closet space. Vast <laughs> closet practically in this house in, in the city, both and in the country. I would expect no less. <laughs> so I'm having great joy of uh, shopping my closet. Yeah. You know? So, so what is your most treasured item then you have that you have within your sartorial kind of? Oh. Well, Collection. I mean, I have to go back to stuff that, and I may not wear it, although I did wear it for a Hello Magazine shoot um, last year, um, a dress that Carl Lagerfeld himself gave me when oh, wow. I was like about seven months pregnant uh, in his atelier in Paris, uh, the eve of, uh, he was working on a couture show. And I went to interview him and I was like, felt like a beached whale. I was really quite, <laughs> quite pregnant. And uh I was wearing some drab olive green maternity uh, outfit and uh, I waited for him for like four hours or something as he often did keep people waiting. Um, and then when he, you know, during that way, his assistant said to me, you know, we must put you in something from Chanel. I went, oh, you're never going to find anything that's going to fit me. Look at my shape. <laughs> oh, no, 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 come with me. And, and uh, incredible, Gilles Dufour was his name. He ended up being a designer himself. Took me into this back room and there were racks and racks of old, you know, couture samples. And, and there was this one dress. And I, I, I was thought, oh, it's, life can be ironic. Well, here I am, like not being able to put into anything and I'm being offered anything that fits like what so I'm looking and looking and all of a sudden there was this beautiful black crepe and white satin dress that had this kind of chevron style going down the front so I thought well, that could be really slimming and it was a wide cut like a boxy kind of fit and it had the fabulous little um you know pearl and gold uh signature Chanel buttons on it with a little, you know, black camellia um, at the neck. And it was just a classic Chanel little cap sleeve. I thought, okay, let, let me try this. Let me try this. So I tried it and it actually fit me. And I felt like oh, transformed that this was heaven. And Carl came in finally. And oh my God. Like, oh, you know, the dress looks fabulous. That's fabulous on you. You know, <laughs> did the interview with him. And it was the first really long sit down interview that I'd ever done with him. And at the end of the interview, he goes, oh, yeah. Um, what he said something about that. He said, robe, ce sera un cadeau pour toi. And I went, like, cadeau, you know, you hear the word cadeau 
in a French, you know, design studio. <laughs> I think you've died and gone to heaven. Cadeau yeah. gifting me with this incredible dress, and they did, and it proudly hangs in my closet to this day. Yeah, that was oh I was pregnant gosh. with uh, with my second child, uh, Joey, at that time. So that this was in nineteen eighty nine, in the summer of eighty nine. And uh, so anyway, I have that dress. It's great. And I actually, they were shooting me for the holiday edition of uh, Hello Magazine was having an anniversary edition a few months back. And they said, okay, we're coming to your home. We just want to shoot you, you know, um, in, in something fabulous. So I said, I don't have anything fabulous. I mean, I haven't bought a new gown in ages and I, I'm not, I don't really feel like dressing up like that. And then I thought, I wonder if that Chanel dress would still fit. And now, especially it'll still fit because I've, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I've increased my waistline a bit over the years. Um, and sure enough, the thing fit fabulously and I got to wear it and you know, strut it again. So what a dream. Everything old is new again. So I, I do say, you know, I've given away many, many, many clothes over the years for almost 15 years. I did uh, a sale with Gilda's Club and I'm on the, um, well, the honorary board of Gilda's great, great uh, charity that uh, I really just support wholeheartedly and I used to give my clothes to this clothing sale and we used to sell them and it was a good feeling because I'd see people going out into the world in the clothes that I once enjoyed so many special times in and you know giving them new life um but that guild is because of COVID they haven't been doing anything like that mm. so I've, in the last couple of years I've been collecting more and more of these clothes that they I get very sentimentally attached to clothes I think a lot of people can relate to that you know of course of course on a date with so-and-so or when you know when you got your first big break or whatever you just don't want to let go of some pieces yeah uh, a few more questions productivity hack popcorn, popcorn. I, I can't write without it i can't oh. write full <laughs> of popcorn <gasps> amazing bad, but it helps me for whatever reason you know especially you know when you're trying to squeeze out that first paragraph to really get you going or even the first sentence of it I yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> eureka it happened so i'd say popcorn all the way <laughs> i love it i i've never received a response like that and i love it um <laughs> best career advice you've ever received don't take yourself too seriously yeah yeah biggest risk you've taken uh while reporting on fashion I would say getting into it without really know without really knowing that much about fashion. I mean, when I started covering fashion, I just you know it was on the heels of me being a rock reporter. Mm -hmm. You know, I was doing much music, the new music, another show that I started, and I didn't really know much about any of it. I didn't have any kind any kind of academic background in fashion. I didn't. I knew that I loved it, but I didn't really know you know what Chanel was famous for, what any, any of that stuff. You know, I just jumped in. Yeah. Best way to make sure your voice is heard? Scream twice as loud, hmm. <laughs> which you have to do in this country, sadly. <laughs> I found that definitely. Yes. I, I really think that's one of the things about this country. We do, you know, I mean, I love this country. Um, don't get me wrong, but uh, to make your voice heard sometime, maybe it's getting a little bit better with, uh, you know, the advent of social media and that, those kinds of technological platforms that are so readily available but I, I think uh, Canadians often get ignored for you know whatever reason and I think you just have to scream twice as loud yeah your favorite assignment oh 
wow, there have been so many. I know, I know. It, oh it doesn't have to be your God. favorite, just one that you loved, let's say. I mean, probably, um, okay, no, I'll, I'll, can I, does it have to be for my fashion career? Because we've taught you no, so much. No, anything, anything. I would say uh, going to uh, a beach in Antigua to interview Keith Richards. Oh, I mean, wow. Yeah, that was pretty good. Yeah, no, that definitely <laughs> is going to be at the, the top of the list for sure. <laughs> um, and last one, biggest career win for Jeannie Becker. Um, uh, a toss up between the Order of Canada and having a star on the Walk of Fame right down the street where my dad had his slipper factory. Oh my gosh, yeah, that is so special. I love that. And I love that that's the way that we're ending our interview because that's the way that we started this interview talking about your family. Um, so thank you again so much for being so generous with your time, your insight. And it was just very special to be able to chat with you. And um, I look forward to being able to do it again sometime soon. Oh, Lance, I really an absolute joy. It's just been such a pleasure meeting you. And uh, this was a gift to me today. As we've mentioned throughout this conversation, fashion, like many art forms, is often a reflection of the times, a barometer that tells us a larger story around what we value and what we're going through as a society in a given moment. And if fashion is a story to be told, Jeannie is a storyteller, one that has relayed the messages with her signature electric energy and charisma since the beginning of her career. On a localized level, Jeannie also changed what it meant to be in Canadian media. Syndicated in 130 countries for almost three decades, her show, Fashion Television, was a portal that opened up a universe of possibilities for so many around the world. Today, she's not only continuing to share the stories of today's greatest icons, but also those of her own. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd appreciate it if you left a review on Apple Podcasts so we can get the word out. To keep up to date, subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, ask yourself, what's your mission?